All right, guys. Well, I believe that we are live now. Yes, I believe we are live here. Uh, Facebook Live, guys. This is our first time uh, doing the Rec Poker podcast on Facebook Live simulcast. Uh, we're also recording it. We'll make it available through the usual channels. And of course, Rob Washam immediately goes on video mute the second we get on Facebook Live. I see how it is, Rob. Uh, but but welcome to our first Facebook Live broadcast, y'all. Um, I'm your host, Steve Fredlin. We've got Taylor Moss, Rob Washam, John Somsky here. And as we go through this deal, feel free to comment, add questions uh, while you're watching this. Otherwise, if you're listening on the podcast, thanks for joining on there. I'm actually going to share a PowerPoint presentation so you don't have to look at my whole big face the whole time. And panelists, uh, you guys know the drill. Just, just jump in whenever you want. But this is episode 156. And it's also our first time where we're going to be going through and just answering some questions from you guys, the listeners. So we actually ended up with more questions than we could answer tonight, um, which is a great. It was just a short turnaround, one day turnaround. So hopefully this is something you all enjoy. We'll add our insights, our thoughts, our perspectives on either questions or hands uh, that you guys have. So first of all, I want to thank our official sponsor, Running Aces Racetrack and Casino, as well as our our brand new additional sponsor, Learn Pro Poker, which is Ryan LaPlante's training site. So they've come on uh, as a sponsor of the podcast. So thanks to Ryan and the team there. Running Aces Players of the Week, I'm getting sick of saying this name, Andrew Feist, uh, right up top there. Dave Kramer, Kent Allen, and a three-way tie for fourth, Greg Hill, Rick Keister, and Tanya Payne. Tanya took down the double stack this week, so nice job to her and that entire crew. Uh, a few announcements. Uh, some of you know that we've got another one of our heavy hitters coming up next week. We have an opportunity to interview Maria Ho. She's going to be on November 25th. And then Ryan LaPlante on December 2nd. Also December 2nd. Oh, do I have that date right? That might be the wrong date. It's that first Wednesday of the month. So that might be December 4th. John can correct me. Yeah, the 4th. The 4th. So I got the wrong date in the PowerPoint. But December 4th, the first Wednesday of every month, we do our Poker Stars home game. And I know John's got something that works. John, do you want to chime in there? Sure. Uh, we're going to try to, um, well, starting in January, we're going to try to start helping to promote, promote uh, home games or, or mixed games. So we'll be doing those on another night. It's either going to be the second or third uh, Wednesday of the month to keep in Wednesdays as the, the target date to play. And we'll Ramp it up slow. Start off with just hold them in Omaha, then add uh, stud, stud eight or better, then a little raz, then we'll move on to eight game to kind of let people get their feet wet with different game variants and get used to playing. So hopefully it'll help re uh, get people excited about playing mixed games. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for doing that, John. And I know, you know, recently we had Adam Friedman on, who's a mixed game expert. He's got three World Series of Poker bracelets. And he talked about uh, even the value of playing mixed games for those of us who are exclusively Hold'em and how that actually does help our Hold'em game too. So uh, I'm excited to learn. I've been, I've been tempted to try, so now I'm excited to actually uh, get over the hump. So thanks for doing that, John. Uh, the NFL Survivor Pool, uh, we've been doing that. Uh, if, if you guys have been tracking us, we had nine people who were left uh, a week ago and they all lost on the same week because of the upsets. So six of the nine people re-entered. We're continuing on. Uh, kind of starting a new pool the rest of the way, and five of those survived. Uh, the the guy that's managing this thing, Jake Mason, he got busted. I don't know who he had, but uh, his team lost. 
And just a reminder to connect with us. So we've got Discord. It's a free uh, chat uh, chat application that you can use. Uh, you can become a member. We've got the email list. We've got Twitter, Facebook, everything at rec.poker. So check out everything we have going on. So, uh, well, panelists, did I, did I miss anything? Any announcements that you guys have before we roll into listener questions? All nope. right. All right. So the first question, well, we actually had three questions that I thought were, they're independent, but they're pretty related. And so I want to get your guys' thoughts on these. You can either, uh, I guess, address them all at once or take them one by one. And then I also, in response to this, have uh, a couple slides from uh, the course. We did, we did a seminar a while back, a training seminar from uh, Solve for Why Academy with Matt Hunt. And so I, I pulled a few things off there to help respond to these questions as well. Uh, but here, here's the three questions that we got. Tim Ryan on Facebook uh, said, you know, strategy in early stages of a tournament. Should I be more aggressive, be conservative, or some combination? How to play in early stages of a tournament? Steve Espeseth, who's a great Omaha player, uh, on Facebook, he said, I always see more flops in early stages of the tournament. So I'm curious about thoughts on that. And then Josh Leibowitz, and I think this, Josh, I think you're in Japan. I think this is the Josh that's over in Japan. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, he said, I've always had trouble with the last three to six tables in a big multi-table tournament. Uh, so in a situation where we're well past the bubble, the bubble is burst, but we're down to that last three to six tables um, you know, he always struggles in that spot, kind of between the bubble and the final table. So, guys, I'm going to open it up. What are your What are your thoughts on some of these questions? Well, I tell you what, I played a little bit on Saturday, and one of the things I saw a lot of mistakes that uh, the players I was playing against were making was in the early stages. You know, we start with fifteen thousand chips. 50, 25, 50 were the blinds. So you have 300 big blinds. People were calling everything. Every hand, somebody's in every single hand. They'll call, someone will raise, and it's not that much money, so they'll call that. And then the flop will totally miss them, and then they'll fold. And by the, you know, and it's 20 minute blinds, so it doesn't take long, and you're down to 100 big blinds and then 50 big blinds in, in less than an hour. And all of a sudden, they're short stacks, and they wonder what the heck happened. So I think um, my strategy in the early sessions, early stages of a tournament, are to only get involved when I have a good, decent hand that has a lot of equity, and I can uh, narrow the field with a with a raise. Otherwise, I'm going to the marginal things. Uh, Queen Jack suited. You know, if there's five people that have you know limped in already, and I'm sitting in a cutoff for the button with queen jack suited, that might look like a pretty good spot, but I'm just going to fold that and wait for a better spot. So it's, I think people in the early stages, especially in the small tournaments that we play are making a big mistake by playing way too many hands and calling, calling raises after limping. John Taylor, anything? Yeah. I, I have a couple things to add. Um, Rob hit on a lot of good things in terms of like, just because you have a lot of big blinds doesn't mean you have to be playing more. Um, I try, at least myself personally, I try to view it as, you know, is this a profitable call for me? Like, am I going to make money on average when I'm calling or raising or whatever it may be in the early stages of a tournament? Uh, the one thing I would disagree with Rob on is, um, 
a hand like Queen Jack suited does have a lot of implied odds if we're able to hit something there. Uh, so it has a lot of straight and flush outs, which with being that deep stacked, those types of hands go up uh, quite a bit in terms of equity, uh, where hands like top pair, um, you're probably not going to win a hundred big blind pot with top pair, uh, but you may with a straight or a flush. Um, so your strategy can shift in the early stages of a tournament to kind of attack those types of hands. Um, <clears throat> but in general, um, I would say I'm neither aggressive nor conservative in the early stages of a tournament because you just want to be making the best decisions you can. Uh, the I guess the last piece I'll add is it can kind of stimulate bad habits if you're calling and seeing too many hands pre-flop or in the early stages of a tournament. You know, if you get a hand like 10-7, and you're like, well, let's open this up. Let's see what happens. Uh, those bad habits can carry through in the tournament because you kind of get into this rhythm of, well, I got a suited hand. Let's raise it up and let's see what happens. If you don't have a set strategy around what you're doing with that, uh, you can get into situations where you have 25 big blinds and then you're opening that hand and you're just setting yourself up for failure. Um, so there's a lot of things to, at least in my mind, be considered when uh, you're in the early stages of a tournament. Yeah, and I'll <clears throat> build on what Taylor just said. The I think it's, as Rob said, you don't want to be wasting chips early on in the tournament. But it is the one time that you do have good implied odds for speculation. If the table is not raising, if it's limping, and you truly have a good hand. A good hand does not mean 9-6 suited. You know, you have to have a really good table to make that good. In general, when the blinds are so low and uh, compared to your stack, you're not incentivized to play. You're not losing much of your stack. You can afford to be patient. Now, on the other hand, you also have great implied odds, which means some of these speculative hands can be okay to play. But again, you're not playing to put a large amount of your stack in if you hit top pair. You're playing, you know, if you hit a set that's disguised or if you hit the straight or the flush, then you can get in. But you got to make sure that they aren't milking you for it. You, so in general, you want to do those types of speculative hands towards later position where you can be where it's less likely people are going to raise. And you also have to pay attention to your taper, table. If there are people who want to punish the limpers, then that's not the table to be playing those speculative hands. Um, as far as the, so I think seeing more flops in earlier stages is sometimes okay. It really depends upon the tournament and depends upon your goals. You just want to make sure you don't bleed off your chips. Even if you double up, it doesn't increase your equity in the tournament that much at that stage. So you really want to make sure that you're living to the later stages where you can actually gain more equity. As far as the last three tables, it's kind of the corollary to what I said. When the blinds start to go up, you have to put make plays. You can no longer afford to be patient. The blinds are representing a significant portion of your stack, which means you have to be willing to gamble and take risks in order to build your, build your stack. If you're having trouble at the last three to six tables of the tournament, 
when blinds are getting low, that means you probably weren't aggressive enough when there were five to eight tables left in the tournament. You need to be aggressive at that point in time to make sure you keep your stack healthy. I mean, it it's a little bit of a, a give and take. You can only take what the tournament mm-hmm. gives you, but that's kind of my general take on those three questions. Yeah, I like what you said in the last one too. I mean, I guess, you know, we're, we're all making the assumption and I assume this is true that, you know, when he says he's having trouble with the last three to six tables, I assume that means he's unable, you know, he's not building a big stack. I mean, I guess he could be having trouble playing too aggressively or something like that, but I'm guessing it's more like, like most, you know, recreational players that we know. And I don't know Josh's, you know, you know, experience level, but a lot of it is, man, I can make it to that top 15%, that top 20%, but I just never have chips. Now, if that's the issue, then yeah, exactly right. Especially, you know, as you said, John, once, once the bubble has burst, that's the time to start getting busy, start, you know, looking to pick up pots and you just can't be afraid to go broke at that point because you really do want to build a stack so you can make a, make a deep run or have a shot at a deep run. And, and, you know, the first two, as you guys mentioned too, I think it is, it is somewhat table dependent. Um, you know, like, like this nine, seven suited sort of hands. If it's a, if it's a limp fest all the time, I'll, you know, I'll limp at that in late position and see what happens. But yeah, if there's a lot of raising and re-raising, it's just, you're just not really getting the price usually to, to play those hands and kind of the comments that you guys made. I mean, you're really not playing those sorts of hands like the queen jack suited, you know, if you're playing it, you're not really playing it for the rank kind of like that's maybe Rob's point. Yeah. You hit a queen or a jack. And then I see people just, you know, go broke or lose so many of their chips you know, losing to a king queen or an ace queen or whatever, like the points that you guys made, you're, you're playing those hands for straights and flushes. That's really what you're looking for uh, at that point. If you happen to win a pot, you'll probably win a small pot and that's fine uh, if you hit a pair, but normally, yeah, you're looking for those big draws. So, so I agree with that, but I've seen, you know, like, like Steve said, I always see, you know, I, I always see more flops early stages of the tournaments. Uh, I don't disagree with that in some of the tournaments, but I do see people see way too many flops with the hands like ace nine king eight, you know, queen five suited, that kind of stuff where, yes, once in a while, you, you, you know, you pick up chips, but like Rob was saying, so often you just, you're, you're, you know, you call and then maybe, maybe you hit bottom pair. So you call again and then you full turn and you just bleed away chips so quickly that way. Sorry, Rob, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, that hand like the queen Jack, it, when you're at a, at a table where you got five or six limpers, um, the equity of that hand goes way down. Because if you hit something, chances are your your opponents didn't. So you're not going to probably get paid off very often when you do make those hands. So by chasing it, and I call it chasing it, I think you, uh, you're giving up too many of your chips too cheaply. If I can't, if I can't feel comfortable raising uh, enough to you know, so-called punish the limpers, with the hand I have, um, then I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to let it go. Now I'll limp with pairs, you know, maybe try to hit a set. Cause that's a little bit more, you can catch somebody with top pair and, uh, maybe get some chips that way. But, you know, a couple of big cards, I, I'll, I might, uh, raise a little bit more often, but yeah, I think I'm and when it's a limp fest like that, I just like to watch everybody else bleed away their chips. One or two guys will pick up on all of the green and black chips. <laughs> and uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> and you see the the black chip leader. Oh, good for you. Um, 
and then just kind of hang out, wait for it gets later in the tournament before you can, re- then you can really start putting pressure on them because they're low in chips. They can't fight back anymore. Yeah, I think a key point of what we're getting at here is the value of certain ranks of hands change as the tournament goes on. Yeah. Um, like, think about it all the way to the extreme example of heads up at the end. Like, if you're heads up and you have middle pair, generally feel pretty good about it, right? If you're in the early stages of a tournament and you have middle pair, you almost never feel good about it. Um, so when you're in the early stages of the tournament, those higher value hands um, just have that much more value. So you don't want to go broke with top pair, top kicker early in a tournament. Uh, are you all right going broke with top pair, top kicker when you're at the final two tables or something like that? You probably are. Like, I mean, it depends on the situation, but like it, if you are aware of how those change throughout the tournament, it can help influence what hands are you playing and how are you playing hands pre-flop, on the flop, after the flop, etc. cetera, um, because that's a key component here. Um, it's not just, do I see more flops? Do I you know, widen my range? Do I tighten my range? Do I play more aggressive or more conservative? Uh, you just really have to be aware of the situations that are around you. And the biggest one in my mind is how hand values change throughout the tournament. Yeah, and that's not just uh, just just to clarify or not clarify, but just to follow up on that, Taylor. I just want to make sure that I'm understanding that right. So it's it's not just that okay, specul- speculative hands are higher value early in a tournament, and they're less value later in a tournament. And part of that is because of stack size and all of those things. So you know, the the higher rank hands aren't just more valuable because speculative are less valuable. It's because they actually do become more valuable as you go because of stack size and stuff. So it really is this you know the speculative hands sort of decrease in value as a tournament goes on and the bigger rank hands, you know, increase in value as, as the tournament goes on. It really is. There's a, a flip that switch and, and you see the less experienced players. I, I think um, you'll, you'll see them with, you know, eight big blinds, you know, calling a, a three big blind bet with pocket threes or something. Uh, you know, late in a tournament, you'll also see people just going crazy with ACE 10 early in a tournament. I think those are mistakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to use ACE 10 as an example before when I was talking about stuff where, that's the hand that I see change in value the most as the tournament goes on early stages. I don't really want to be playing ACE 10. Like you're going to be crushed in so many situations. Um, it's rarely going to give you kind of the return that you're hoping for, but later on in the tournament, like ACE 10, it is a fairly strong ACE. Um, it's going to have decent equity and all of a sudden it like becomes playable again. It like starts to show value and it is a solid hand to have when everyone's getting shorter stacked. <clears throat> and we, and so, get, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, finish. I, I didn't know if you were done or if you were just coughing. No, I was just going <laughs> to sum up what I said. Go so, ahead. Uh, it's it's past. <laughs> so, the sum is done. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think, would you say then that because of that, um, you know, position is always important, but I tend to feel like position is more important early in the tournament when you're playing the speculative hands uh, because you have an opportunity to kind of control the size of the pot and get paid when you hit a hand versus later when it's, you know, if you're down to that, you know, especially really late, the five to 10 big blinds, position doesn't really matter as much. You're just going off hand rank. Is that I fair? I would totally agree with that. Uh, so, I mean, position plays such an effect when you're playing multiple streets because each time yeah. you get that extra piece of advantage when you're in position 
um, later on in a tournament, especially like daily tournaments and stuff like that, it becomes a point where there's really not much action. It's maybe three things happening, you know, an open raise, a shove, and then either a call or a fold. Mm-hmm. Um, that never happens early in a tournament. You're always going raise, calls, uh, see a flop, bet, call, check, etc. all those types of things. And all those relay information and having position just gives you an extra piece of information every time. Yep. And I would say, you know, to, to directly answer Tim's question for myself, uh, and maybe you guys touched on this a little bit, but early in the tournament, I'm, I'm very conservative. I feel like uh, I will take spots if they're there, but, uh, you know, I'm just, if I have, you know, ace jack under the gun, I, it's just a fold for me. King queen under the gun is a fold for me. Um, those, those hands are just typically just folds for me. Uh, largely based on position. Uh, but, you know, if there's, a, if there's a decent raise, I might fold pocket threes, you know, even though it's a implied odds, if there's a lot of action, you know, I don't know. The, I just tend to be more on the conservative side. But, yeah, especially with those reverse implied odds hands like the ace-jack, king-queen, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and again, the, in the early stages of the tournament, you're going to be seeing a flop with three or four of your best friends. <laughs> so, you, uh, you know, any equity that you have is diluted because of the number of players that you're playing against. So to Taylor's point, later in the tournament, you you have an opportunity to get more aggressive because you're usually only up against one or two opponents at the most. And it go it is pretty standard at that time. Whereas early in the tournament, boy, everybody's getting involved. And that's yeah. when I agree you need to be conservative, especially in early position. Don't play those crappy uh, suited connectors or those like Taylor said the ace 10 stay away from it in early position, especially. All right. And then, uh, you know, maybe to, to Josh's point a little bit more too. So John, John touched on that a little bit. How about other guys, you guys have thoughts on this, this idea of, you know, kind of you getting, getting into the money, getting past the bubble, but then having trouble. And I guess my, my first thought is, you know, really need to figure out, okay, what's the cause of the trouble? Is it, you know, we're, we're call folding too much pre-flop. You know, are we too aggressive? Kind of, we need to kind of know what the trouble is that's that's happening there. But do you guys have any other sort of general thoughts on people that tend to struggle in this arena? Yeah, I can talk on this a little bit. It this question seems heavily geared towards like online tournaments uh, where you get a field of three hundred, four hundred, etc. Players, and I play a lot of those, and it it can be tough to make these types of deep runs and then always fall short. Like getting 40th is no fun. You probably doubled your money and that was it. Whereas the person who made the final table and got, you know, a decent place just went 70 X on their buy-in. So it can be frustrating, but you have to realize that you have to be aiming for the top in these types of situations if there's call it 60 people left and you're in the middle of the pack, you really have to be gearing yourself up for that deep final table run, uh, which means pushing all the small equity spots that you can find. Uh, Chipping up a small amount here and there can be incredibly important in these stages of the tournament. Um, Conversely, we were just talking about the early stages and stuff like that. You do not want to be pushing small equity spots early stages in a tournament. But once you get later on, you want to be taking all those spots that you can um, because losing pots when we're in this stage can be detrimental to your stack. And then 
uh, one big flip or something like that can push you from top 10 to, you know, bottom 10. And then you're in a really tough spot. So you have to, in my mind, you have to be really smart about small equity spots, which definitely includes um, all ins from small stacks and knowing when you should be calling and folding. And then along that same track, uh, be really smart about your openings and being aware when people are going to be reshoving on you uh, because that's them pushing their mm-hmm. small equity spots and you have to be aware for the, of that. Um, so it becomes a lot of awareness when you're in here. And last thing is you can't get too down on yourself. Uh, if you make it to the top 60 and you know, you're constantly uh, finding yourself out, uh, be aware, like if you get to the top 60, only 16% of you are going to be making the final table. Mm-hmm. Like you're in a spot where you've made it close, but you're not entitled to that final table run. Uh, you do have to play smart, be ready, and uh, hope that the flips go in your favor. That's good stuff. I, I love the the use of the word awareness. I do think that's something at least I don't play online like you do, Taylor, but just I see it in the live game a lot where – You'll see somebody that's got the 15 or 20 bigs. They open a two and a half or three X and then they get shoved on by somebody with 12 or 13 bigs. And they're like, Oh shoot. I didn't really, I hadn't really thought about this. You know, you can just tell they hadn't really thought about what that is uh, versus being aware that that's a very real possibility when you have people sort of in that 10 to 15 big blinds that you're going to get shoved on a fair amount. And so I don't know if that's what's happening here, but that I, I love that idea of awareness and, and not even just awareness, right? It's like it's one thing to say, Oh, I'm aware of how many big blinds everybody has. That's, that's good information, but what does that actually mean? It means, okay, I'm much more susceptible to being shoved on, which should mean then logically I should tighten up my ranges, you know, or, you know, either I'm betting with the full understanding that I might have to fold, or I'm going to tighten up so that I can call off that shove and not just be giving away two or three big blinds. Because, you know, if you have five people behind you with shovable stacks, there's a pretty good chance somebody's going to come over the top of you. Yeah. Robert? I, like what you, I like what you said there. You said, uh, you don't want to be surprised when that guy shoves on you. And that's what Taylor said, being aware. And I know that when I get into that stage of the tournament, I'm looking around the table. I know, try to keep track of how many people, how many blinds people have. And then I will take that into consideration before I make that initial mm-hmm. uh, open. If I have a hand that I feel comfortable calling off a small, a small stack shove with, then I will definitely open it. Um, if I have, if I feel comfortable enough that I know I can fold, if somebody shoves, I might open that one too, but at least I'm aware that the hand I'm opening with, I feel comfortable calling that small shove, or I feel comfortable folding to that small shove. Yeah. So you shouldn't be surprised when it happens. Yeah. And I think you and John has done, John has said this before too, like where he'll be playing and be like, I just, you know, when you're playing your best, you just know, okay, well, if that guy shoves, I'm going to call. If those two guys shove, I'm going to fold. You just kind of even right. know like to, to which player it is. And one of the biggest things that's happened by, by being aware of that is when you're in that really, really great spot of like, you know, you have a monster hand and you want to open with being aware of what the, what the other players have for chips. So you know that you can reopen the pot if a short stack shoves. I think that's one mistake I see a lot of people make like, you know, the, They'll, they'll go to four X, you know, and then somebody with like six or six and a half big blinds shoves and then they get two callers and they can't reopen the action. Whereas if they had raised a three X, they could have reopened the action. That, you know, it sounds 
like small, but you do see it. It comes up, you know, very often in tournaments, those sorts of things. So that's part small of equity I think, spots. I mean, those are the small equity spots. You have to be yeah. willing and knowledgeable to push those. Yeah. But, but, but being aware that somebody has, you know, six big blinds. So you open up to a point where you can reopen if they shove and two people call and then isolate them with all that dead money. Those are the, that, you know, it's part of it just being a, being aware. Okay. I'm aware they have six big blinds, but what does that actually mean for how I play this strategically? Um, good stuff. Well, anything else on that? Otherwise I want to, I want to, you know, take this to the next thing that, and I don't know if all of you guys were there, but we did a, we did a, um, a seminar where Sulfur Y gave us access to a video by Matt Hunt, which I thought was fantastic. I've been using it quite a bit. We don't have a lot of time to go through this in detail, but I want to at least hint at it a little bit. It gets us some of these tournament uh, strategy questions. And if you're not watching this on Facebook Live or on the video of the podcast, we'll we'll explain it. It's not, you know, it's not super complicated, but Matt talked about these key strategic concerns. When you're playing a multi-table tournament, obviously you have chip EV. You know, you have the EV calculation, what's the most valuable play from a chip perspective. But he also talked about your volatility incentives change over the course of a tournament, which basically means how, how open are you or how much do you welcome volatility at different stages of a tournament? It's different. Uh, how much are you incented to be concerned with ICM implications, the independent chip model? If you don't know what that is, go back and listen to old podcasts or look that up. Basically just being, it's aware of the payout structure and how that should impact your decisions. And then also future skill edge, being aware of, you know, what is your skill edge relative to the field and how much you should consider that at different stages of the tournament. So he talked about the volatility, ICM, and future skill edge. Uh, and then he, he broke down the tournament into six rough stages. And um, I'll try to put this out in the show notes. We don't have time to get into all the details of it. Maybe if, if people say, man, let's talk about that more. We can make an episode out of this. Uh, but he talked about the preservation stage right on the front end, which is what we kind of talked about on early stages. He said, that, you know, the opening levels, there's very little volatility incentivized. The main goal is to chip up with minimal risk. And then he talks about the expansion stage and then there's the bubble and then there's the consolidation phase and then leveraging and then closing it out. And I just, I don't know, I just loved this, this whole uh, explanation of it. And I'll go through these really quick. So the preservation we talked about expansion is where now you're, you're past kind of that first initial stage. And I always think of the expansion stages when the antis tend to kick in and here's where some volatility is encouraged. Uh, in order that we can build a big stack to pressure the bubble. So, you know, you want to be in the situation where you can pressure the bubble. So there is this phase between the early preservation stage and the bubble where that's your time to chip up and you're actually going, you should be welcoming more volatility, willing to take on more volatility for the chance at having the stack that then you can then punish the bubble with. And then on the bubble, volatility is heavily disincentivized. Um, and he says, you know, how this affects us depends on our stack and position. So, you know, if we have a big stack, we can punish the bubble. If we have a short stack, we're subject to being punished. Um, and so that is a, that's why we want to build up chips during that expansion phase. And now the bubble bursts, and now he calls it the consolidation phase. That's where stacks start to consolidate. So volatility increases. We've got the min cash. There's not going to be a pay jump for a while. So our goal here is to build a stack that can make a deep run. And that's what we were talking about with Josh's situation. You know, once the bubble bursts, that's the time to get busy and you're willing to take on more volatility uh, for a chance at getting that big stack so you can make that really deep run. And then leveraging is as the final table approaches, 
Our goal is to accumulate a stack that can leverage other stacks. So again, we're trying to get those stacks. So it's kind of like the expansion stage before the bubble, where we're trying to build a stack so that we can hammer the bubble. During this leveraging phase, where we're trying to get the stack so that we can leverage that big stack against those, especially the medium short, the medium stack, so we can kind of put pressure on them because they don't want to bust because pay jumps are coming and that sort of thing. And then closing it out is simple. Uh, acquire every chip at the table and win the tournament. That's uh, easy. That's all you have to do. Uh, but those are the six stages. And for those of you who are seeing this on video, you'll see this. Um, it's not the, I, I added some words to try to make it a little bit more user friendly. But what he does is he, he created a graphic depiction of these three different things for the six different phases of the tournament. So basically, the, the one that I think is the most interesting. I think ICM is pretty straightforward. We know that there's huge ICM implications on the bubble and then at the final table. Uh, the future skill edge is something we probably have to talk through a little bit, but basically uh, always be thinking through how much skill do I have and advantage over my opponents. And when you're thinking about taking those close spots, um, that should come into play when you're considering that. But I think the most interesting one for me, at least, is this volatility incentive. And this has informed quite a bit about how I play tournaments. So early on in the preservation phase, you really don't have an incentive to play a lot of volatility. I think John said, you know, the pots aren't big enough, or maybe Rob said that. Um, but as you, as you move into like the anti-stage, into this expansion stage, you actually are incented to play a higher volatility sort of game because you need to build up chips so that you can pressure the bubble. And then on the bubble, your incentive to play volatile goes down. Um, and then once that bubble bursts, your volatility incentive is really high again uh, because now you're not going to see a, you know, the min cash, you're not going to see a pay jumps for a while. This is your chance to get to work and try to build a stack. Uh, and then you get into the whole final table, ICM implications where your volatility goes down. And then ultimately when you're down to two or three people, you're incented to play a higher volatility game. So I, I kind of went through that super fast. Uh, but what for, for you guys, either whether you're part of that earlier, it's like a 45 minute video or not, kind of what, stands out for you or what do you take exception with? I remember when we did the video and it was really, really, really intense and really fun. One of the things we talked about earlier is uh, when we're down to that three to six tables. And one of the things that happens after the bubble bursts, you, you want to, in the expansion part, you want to make sure you get a big stack of chips because then you get into the bubble. Once the bubble bursts, there's all these small stacks and they feel real comfortable now because they made the money and now they're just throwing their chips away. And if you have enough chips, you can take advantage of that. And that's where the volatility comes in. But that's where you can really consolidate your stack because the shorter stacks are playing much looser than they were prior to the bubble. And now you can really take advantage of that. Um, so that's one of the things that I've seen and it really does play out that way. Yeah, I'll add to the volatility thing. Um, it kind of really gets back to some of the stuff we talked about before, where you kind of want to take chances to get to the top spot. Like that's where the payouts are. Um, so much of the money is given to first place, second place, et cetera, that um, if you just play a very conservative game the whole way through and can guarantee you know, that 10th percentile finish, 
you're not going to um, do that well in the long run. You really need to start changing your strategies and go more volatile in certain spots uh, to try and build up the chip stack to give you that real chance at going for first place. Um, I think a lot of recreational players just view it as, a, hey, I'm just trying to survive and get through. Uh, but there are definitely spots, and they're laid out here on the slide in terms of stages of the tournament, where you really should be looking at uh, trying to get a big chip stack. Yeah, go ahead, John. I was just going to mention, um, you know, it, it takes a little bit of a, I don't know, a Jedi attitude towards it. And if you can do that and look at it and say, you know, I was in the, the early stage. We hadn't reached the bubble, but I was making the plays that were going to set me up to win this tournament. So even though I went out, I'm okay with that because I feel good about it. And likewise, in the volatility stage, you know, if you manage to eke your way up and let's say that, let's say a tournament plays 20 places, if you make it to the 10th place, you're probably only doubling your money over what 20th was. You really have to make it to that top uh, 5% beyond, you know, of the finishing to really do well. So, um, and I think this, although the graphic is busy and confusing, it makes a lot of sense if you understand it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know I've talked about this quite a bit, you know, and I'm, I'm one of those people out there that track all my numbers, but you know, when I first started playing or even just a couple, you know, three, four years ago, uh, I was cashing at a, at, you know, pretty high percentage. You know, if you play running aces, 10% cash and I was cashing at like 23, 24, for whatever percent, which sounds great, right? Like you're cashing more than, more than double what you should quote unquote, but I was a losing player because when I was cashing, I was getting somewhere between two and a half and three times my money on average when I did cash because it was almost all min caches. And so it looks really good, right? I mean, if, if my goal is to cash a lot, you know, I was, I was accomplishing it, but I was actually like a negative 20% ROI and I was cashing twice as often as I should, quote unquote, you know, and so that's where, you know, some of this sort of training to help me realize, no, you're, you're actually incented to take on volatility, you know, at, at phase two and at phase four, you know, phase two, yeah, you're going to bust more often. It's just a fact. You'll bust more often, but you'll also be the person sitting there with 70K when the average stack is 25K and you can catch the short stack shoves, you can apply a little bit of pressure, you know, especially on the bubble and that, that 70K becomes 130K and now you've got a final table chip stack with, you know, 30 people left. So, um, you know, I think that that is, that is, it's, it is shown in this graphic here, but I like, John, you know, you don't have to have a Jedi mindset of, of being able to say that. Like, yeah, I, I took on added volatility and some people might think I'm crazy, but I believe it was the right play even though, you know, it was the blinds were 500 to 1,000 or something. Well, anything else on that, guys, or we'll get to the next question? No, that was kind of a fire hose version. All right, so this, this kind of comes into play here. Um, I have to hide my, my thing here. So, Jamie, I'm not sure if you pronounce your last name, Gerard or Gerard, uh, but Jamie on Facebook, um, his question and comment, which sort of ties into this, and this is where I really wanted you guys' thoughts on this because this is a really, really good question. Uh, he's, he's asking about exploitative three-bet shove strategies in position at 15 to 25 big blinds in an MTT. Is it better to see flops versus a raise 
if you know that you're going to be in position and you can outplay your opponent post-flop, or is it better to do a lot of three-bet shoving? Again, he's got that 15 to 25 big blinds and he's in position. Uh, this is especially relevant in structures where there's not a lot of depth to stacks. Gentlemen? Talk about a fire hose type of question, I think. Isn't it a great question? <laughs> I mean, we can sit here and talk about this, but there's probably a ton of different inputs that go into yeah. how you should be playing these certain spots. Uh, first and foremost, you really have to be aware of what position your opponents are in, what position are you in, what's their stack, and what's uh, your stack. Well, talk, talk a little um, bit. I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, Taylor, but well, I did mean <laughs> to interrupt you, but I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, you know, talk a little bit about that because, you know, he said, well, we're in position, but I, I, what I hear you saying is we need to define that a little bit more by what position are, is each player in, not just that we happen to be on their left. Right. Because if you're talking they're cut off and we're the button, that's a totally different answer than they're under the gun in your middle position. Um, you have to be aware of who's left to act behind you, um, what was their opening position, uh, because most savvy players are going to be changing their opening range based off their position, which means if you're going to be deciding if you should call or raise or fold, uh, you should be aware of their perceived range and how your hand is going to compare up against that. So the extreme example that I did right away of they're in the cutoff and you're on the button, uh, great spot because they should have a pretty wide range there, uh, giving you full arsenal to pull out a three bet and try and take the pot down there. Uh, if they're under the gun, you're in the situation where they should have a tight range and uh, they're likely going to be calling a lot of their range because a lot of their range is high value. Uh, so it makes your fold equity go down considerably in those situations. Um, and then I think the last thing I would state is, I know we picked, or it was picked uh, somewhat arbitrarily, this 15 to 25 big blinds. And it's a good number to pick, but your strategy should uh, vary greatly if you're on the low end of that range versus the high end of that range. Uh, 25 big blind stack, you still have a lot of playability left. Uh, 15, you're starting to get into the worry range of uh, should I be trying to conserve my chip stack or is this going to be uh, me trying to push my fold equity? Um, so your answer is going to change a lot based off of where you're actually in uh, this chip stack range. So uh, I'll pause yeah. there and let someone else talk for a little bit. That's great. Robert, John? Yeah, I, I think... Another uh, thing to keep in mind is, so you're at a 15 or 25 uh, big blind tournament. Even if you have a significant advantage against your opponents, your stack is short enough that it's difficult to exercise that advantage to gain much. So I'd be you have to be really careful, particularly like if you're at the 15 big blind portion, if they're raising to two and a half big blinds, that's a significant portion of your stack just to call off. So you have to really think about that hard and, and really be honest. Do you have enough advantage against your opponent to be able to just call there? You're only going to hit the flop one third of the time. Now it's true. They're only going to hit it one third of the time as well, 
but uh, can you make it? And against some opponents, you, that still might be a profitable play, but you need to be a little careful there. True. Yeah. Rob, do you have anything? Well, yeah, I think uh, what we don't know is, you know, what what part of the tournament are we in? Is the bubble burst, you know, that type of thing that will have a bearing on how uh, incentivized you are for volatility, obviously. But one of the things I think about when I'm down to 15, 25 big blinds is I'm going to play a hand. And if, I, if I'm going to get involved in a hand, I, I know I need to be prepared to put my entire stack in. By the time you, you know, call or three bet or whatever you do there, the stack to pot ratio is going to be so low that you're going to have to pretty much go with anything. So if you get involved in it and you somehow you hit second pair top kicker, that might be enough to say, okay, I'm 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 going with this hand. So you have to be prepared before you get involved in that hand. You have to know that you are prepared to go to the to the felt with it. Because otherwise, if you don't have a hand that's strong enough to feel that, then you shouldn't be getting involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, do, you get, do you guys feel like at, at 25 bigs, you could still three-bet fold? Do you feel like, like if it's a cutoff button sort of option, you know, somebody opens to two and a half, can you, can you three-bet to six and a half and then fold if they shove? See, I, I still feel like that play is in the mix with 25 bigs against a certain player. I mean, I, obviously, I don't like doing that, but I feel like, you know, that helps you range somebody pretty pretty immediately, and a lot of times that will work. But maybe I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm taking advantage of a situation I shouldn't be taking advantage of. <laughs> I think it's really player-dependent. Yeah. There. Because yeah, there are some players that will just always pounce on it, and you should be calling – a lot and then there are other players that will play only be raising there if they've got like aces or kings Mm -hmm. you know and and then you can fold right and think streets ahead too steve if you have 25 big blinds you raise it to six and a half they call what's your plan on the flop right yeah i mean i'm probably gonna get in if they just call uh, on any I mean, flop? Well, no, not on any flop, but I mean, right. I don't know if you want to break this down, but... No, 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 I'm, yeah, I'm just trying to provoke the, yeah. the thought no, process, right? No, you're like, right. No, we have think, to be thinking about what happens on the correct. flop. Three it's, cards are going to come out and you have to make a decision. Right, it's typically going to be go ahead and shove. I mean, if they if they donk bet into me, you know, then I'll have some things I've got to think about, but uh, generally, if I'm going to show that much strength and three bet for a quarter of my stack and they just flat, uh, I'm probably going to be representing a big hand. Uh, and just hope that they had, you know, two big cards that missed or something. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> sorry, I'm Serge. Go ahead, Rob. <laughs> if, you, uh, if you're willing to three-bet fold, then you could play the flop a little bit more conservatively. You don't necessarily have to go all in. Yeah. If you're in position, obviously, obviously you're in position. But let's just assume that you're in position. Um, and you three-bet, prepared to fold to a shove because this guy is really this guy that raised is really tight and he doesn't shove. Well, now you know that you possibly have a range advantage on him. Maybe he's got, you know, a smaller pair or something. Um, now you have options on the flop, right? Because yeah. you don't have to, if he checks you, you don't have to bet. No, no. 
because you were willing to fold to begin with. So you can see what develops. And so I don't, I don't think saying that, well, yeah, you're going you're gonna to shove if he doesn't dunk into you yeah. is not necessarily true. Yeah, that's that's probably true. I mean, I you know I hadn't done the math. I mean, and if there's 15 bigs and I still have 19 behind, you're, you're right. I probably, uh, you know, I could check back a medium strength hand. I could I could lead into him for three or four and kind of see where he's at. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. Yeah, but yeah, you have to be ready for those situations. Um, yeah. you can't take one action pre flop and then uh, if it doesn't go fold or all in from your opponent, they still have the option to call. You have to be ready to right. know what you're going to do. Because if you just shut down because you're like, well, they must have a premium right. hand, uh, it's going to be a mistake majority of the time. You have to be assessing your uh, options and making the right decision. Yep. Good point. So I don't know if we, if we uh, it sounds sort of the, the, the answer is it depends, uh, Jamie. I mean, I think the answer is, is very largely it depends. Um, do you guys have any sort of a general feeling, you know, in general, you know, in that 15 to 25 big, which is a pretty wide range, you know, are we, are we calling much there? Or are we, are we raised folding most of the time? Well, if you, uh, you go back to what crazy like a Fox taught us, um, he's saying that you can't three bet and fold to a shove at this stat dip. That's uh, kind of one of the one of the things he had, and I think it was the second or third session we talked about all the zones. Um, this is considered the re-steal zone. And so his philosophy at this point in juncture would be you can't three bet and pull. Yeah, I'm I don't remember what the what the sizes were. No, I, I don't disagree with you. I just know, you know, and these structures are so small too. If I fold you know, if I fold and I still have, you know, 19 bigs, I still feel okay usually in these sort of, these sorts of tournaments, but you're probably right. I don't remember exactly. I always think of like the, the 13 to 15 is sort of the range I use for my reshove stack, uh, which he might have that be a, you know, more of just a, a, an open shove. Yeah. I think it really depends where you are in this uh, 10 big blind range that he has yeah. listed out. Um, you can, three bet fold at the very top part of it if the sizing is small enough. So if you're calling it two to two and a half and then you're three betting to five and a half to six and a half, it is an option. It's not a preferred option. Right. Uh, but take your chip sack down even just like a few big blinds, it becomes less and less appealing. Uh, and you're really kind of making it a spot where you're going to have to call off. Because if you have 20 bigs and you just put in six and a half, well, you've got, what does that make you? 13 and a half left. There's going right. to be 14 in the middle if they shove or dead money yeah. in the middle. Like right. you need 33% yeah. to call. Like it, it's a done deal. You're calling with Correct. almost everything there. Yeah. So at that stage, it makes more sense to just shove all in and try and push your fold equity. Um, yep. So it, it, <laughs> it really depends. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. We, like we talked about, if you have that player that you know the only way he's going to shove over your three bet is with aces or kings, then maybe it's an easy fold. But anybody else, you're presenting them, you're presenting yourself with the best odds in the world to call. I think another way to look at it is the default is probably if you're going to three bet bet with a stack in that range, 
generally speaking, it should be a shove yeah. unless you have good reasons to do otherwise. And there can be good reasons, but you need to have them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when do you call? Because that's the next part of his question was, or is it better to see flops versus a raise? Because that's what he's asking. If somebody bets into you and you're in that 15 to 25 big blinds, you have the exploitive three bet shove strategy, or he's asking what about calling and playing in position? I mean, it should definitely be an option. Like we shouldn't just be defaulting to three better fold. Uh, call is definitely in there. Um, but at the, <laughs> at the lower end, it makes it tough to call off, you know, such a large portion of your stack um, and hoping you can outplay your opponent. Cause I think you're getting at this before Rob, like there's really not that much playability post flop at this stack size. You're typically looking at uh, one street of betting, uh, maybe two, and that cuts down any sort of skill advantage you can have on your opponent. Um, if it's going to be three streets of betting, uh, you know, you're at 40 big blinds deep, like that's when you can start pushing your skill advantage a little bit more. Uh, every time it kind of gets shut down, your skill advantage decreases quite a bit. Um, so just be aware of those types of things. Don't think that just because you have a nine, eight suited in position that you're going to be able to be able to outplay your opponent. Uh, Cause I think John made the point a third of the time you're going to hit a third of the time your opponent's going to hit, but I mean, let's use simple math and say a third of the time, neither of you are going to hit and then you're going to have to outplay your opponent. And do you think you can do that enough uh, to make your call profitable? All right. Yeah. Good, good stuff, guys. Let's go on to the the next question. I think this might be, yeah, is our last, last question here. Uh, so David Frazier, who's part of the, this RRR Facebook group that, uh, that uh, I got tagged in. So thanks to Cooper for tagging me in that deal. Uh, the situation is we're well into the money. So there are 89 people were paid. Uh, only 17 are left. Uh, there's 1,682 bucks locked up and there's a pay jump up to 2000 bucks. So uh, about a $300 pay jump uh, in 15th place, and it's 32000 up top. Blinds are 15000 30000 with a 30000 big blind ante. It folds around to the button. The button raises to 100000 so a little over 3, 3x. Uh, and they have 500000 They thought, well, maybe they have 600000 so somewhere between five hundred and 600000 uh, So somewhere between 16 and 20 big blinds on the button. Uh, and they go to three, little three X plus small blind folds. And our hero uh, is in the big blind with 450,000. So that's the effective stack, uh, which is 15 bigs to start the hand. I think that's before they posted the big blind and the ante. Uh, and they hold king of spades, queen of clubs. Uh, and then, you know, I asked about the button player. Uh, he said, I think he was looking for spots, hands to make a move. Same as me. Uh, raising the button here to him probably meant scooping the blinds which he'd be happy with. So he was sort of wondering, this is sort of an example of what we were just talking about in the previous spot where you got 15 bigs, there's a raise in front from the button, and we're in the big blind with uh, king-queen offsuit. And it was interesting seeing the, the Facebook dialogue on there. I think the, the, certainly the, the most robust answer. 
uh, was just rip it in, do a fist bump as you rip it in. Um, but there were some other different comments out there as well that had sort of varying uh, perspectives. Uh, and so I thought, well, this would be a good one maybe to, to tackle with the crew here and see if we're all aligned or if we have different thoughts on how to play this hand. Who wants to jump in first? It is Rob. <laughs> well, if I'm going to play it, I'm probably going to rip it in fist bump, just like that guy said. Um, but you said if you're going to play it. If I'm going to play it, yeah. And that's dependent on – now, he's saying that this guy is looking for spots, so he could be raising with a lot of marginal hands, just thinking that he's going to be able to win the blinds. So king-queen could be uh, – definitely could be a shove spot. Depends on how I feel that day. <laughs> if you ate your Wheaties or not. <laughs> if you had a good deck read. Exactly. But, you know, we're in, that, we're in that consolidation phase of the tournament right here, right? Yeah. We're in where we're, we're incentivized to take a little bit more volatility to try to big, build a bigger stack to get into that top uh, 5%. Yeah, I mean, ICM is starting to become an issue, but, you know, we're talking about a $300 pay jump if two more people bust. So that's not insignificant for most of us, but compared to the 32,000 up top right. to take a run at, you know, it's not, you really aren't in an ICM spot here. You've got the 1700 locked up. So you got to think of his range and then your range and then kind of figure out what is your, uh, um, what is your equity in this or what, yeah, what is your equity right now in this? Uh, do you have 30% equity with King Queen? I think you probably do against, most of his range. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it could easily be a shove spot. I'm going to, I'm going to shut up now and let Taylor talk. It's good. Or John, either one Taylor's next. I see the unmute button. Hmm. <laughs> so I, I didn't want to answer first because this is a fairly simple answer to me. Um, I've busted, uh, I think two straight tournaments with King queen. Uh, but this is definitely a spot just to rip it in. Uh, button range should be pretty wide. Um, you definitely don't know about the exact player. Um, the other potential caveat here is what do other player chip stacks look like? Right. We have 15 bigs, but is that average? Is that above average? Is it below average? Um, it would have to be well above average for me to consider doing anything else here. Um, but still, this just seems like such a good spot. Um, one of the more recent live tournaments I played, I was in this exact same spot versus uh, Jordan from uh, Fox is Jordan. Hanrich? Yep, Hanrich. Like yeah. um, she had aces in this spot. So you're going to run into it every so often. Sure. Yep. But um, it, it's definitely a spot where they are doing this with King 10. They're doing this with Queen Jack, Queen 9. They're doing this with sevens. They're doing it with fours, fives, all those types of things where you've got good equity against uh, if they do call. Plus, they should be doing this with uh, some hands that they will find a fold. And fold equity can be really nice here. Uh, if they can open fold 100,000, uh, you are just printing money by shoving here. Um, so in my mind, this is a pretty easy uh, reshove. One other question that you might have, is this a normal raise for this person? Right. Um, it, it, it seemed, you know, it's a little more than uh, three big blinds. And normally at this, at this level, I'm probably raising two to two and a half, something like that. 
I'm usually not raising this big. So has he been normally raising two, two and a half, and all of a sudden he jams in three and a quarter? You know, that, that might make you pause. Yeah, sure. that's where if you can pick up on, you know, it, yeah, what what has he been doing? Because for some people, that's going to mean strength. For some, that'll mean weakness. You know, that'll mean that's a go-away sort of raise. And for some people say, oh, I got jacks, and I just hate jacks, so I'm going to raise large. You know, mm-hmm. we don't we don't really know. Taylor, what yeah. were you going to say there? I was going to say exactly what you said. Like, we don't know. We probably don't know exactly what this means. Um, I don't think you can concoct a decent enough, like, range that they would only be doing three whatever 3.25 uh raise to constitute anything but a jam here uh because if you're saying well this is definitely aces like i'm gonna hit you with the counterpoint of why would you raise so big with aces Mm -hmm. why wouldn't you raise smaller and try and like disguise your hand uh so i don't think you can come up with enough about the large sizing um to dictate you should be doing one thing or the other unless you have concrete examples of here's this player. They did this all the time. The one time they had aces, they raised four X or something <laughs> like that. So, I mean, hey, given to me at face value, I think this is an easy shove. John, did you have any thoughts on that one? I think they covered it perfectly. Okay. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't, I don't disagree with you guys, but too much. But I, I, I wasn't as obvious as you guys were on this one. Um, I, I think that's maybe where I end up, but I don't know. I, and I feel like, I feel like it's not because I don't have the equity in the hand. It's just, I guess, the question comes down to: Do I have the fold equity against this player? And that's you don't know the players. Just the type of player that will put in a hundred k and then fold to a four fifty. Uh, if they're capable of it, then I'm more prone to it. But if it's just like they're going to call with 100% of their range, I- I'm torn because I get the argument that we're in the consolidation phase. We're looking for a double. If I can get my king-queen in against jack-10, you know, that's a fist pump, right? Let's go for it. But I also think, you know, if, if we if we fold and move on to the spot, you know, we've still got whatever, 13 bigs. We can maybe find a better spot to steal blinds. Um, I-, I still think at the end of the day it's probably a show, but I'm I'm not as I'm not as vehement about it as, as you guys are. And again, part of that, like you mentioned, I don't know where the other shorter stacks are. Uh, I do like laddering up. I mean, you guys know I like to go for the win too when I feel like the spot is there. So part of it is, do I feel like I have a skill edge? Uh, that sort of thing. But like, I don't know. I, I, I could see an argument for, you know, waiting in orbit, laddering up the 300 bucks and maybe finding a better spot. Uh, so I can see the argument for that. Let's let's unpack it a little bit, Steve, if we've got time. What how what percent of hands is the button opening here? Just give that, me a yeah. I mean, that's X the question. percent of the time. Uh, that's the que- I mean that that is the heat. That is the the ultimate big question because some buttons are going to be opening seventy percent there. Some are going to be opening thirty to thirty five percent there. Sure. Think, okay. So let's say it's the low end. It's thirty. Yeah. Say it's thirty percent. Thirty percent. What uh, percent are they going to call a rejam? Right, do you have your? Uh, are you using a tool that you want to share at all with everybody? I am not. No. I'm just trying oh, okay. to throw out numbers. You're just doing all. Oh, okay. You're going to give me a. Okay. You're going to yeah. give me a percent, and I'm going to say, you know, even if he's calling twenty percent of the thirty, you're still yeah. getting thirty-three percent fold equity. Like thirty-three percent of the time, they're going to fold. Like, make it as tight as you want, and you're going to have a decent amount of fold equity here. Oh from no, a for, decent for sure. Button range, which is going to make the jam profitable. Right. So let's, let's say you know. So if I jam, and he calls off with what top, what's top ten percent even. If it's something that tight, 
Oh yeah. I mean that, then that's a snap jam because yeah. then uh, two thirds of the time they're folding two thirds of the time they're folding one third of the time. I'm probably in pretty rough shape. Sure. But you still have some right, still have equity. equity. No, no, for sure. Yeah. Have equity. Yep. For sure. Have equity. Uh-huh. That's where, you know, my argument's not the <laughs> EV argument. I, I get that. I think the EV is, is for sure where you want to go. I think it's an ICM slash, utility theories, you know, such sort of, you know, non-linearity of value of chips argument. Fair, yeah, fair there. point. I mean, but ICM I, is really tough to quantify here with two tables left. It is. Myself but I, personally. But I think, I mean, the argument that maybe you're making implicitly is, but but the EV is so positive, it overrides the non-linearity argument, right? Because, you know, in a cash game, it's a clear shove. Right. Well, whatever. I assume if the everything, if you can somehow equate that, if you think you have that much fold equity and that much hand equity from Mm -hmm. an EV perspective, it's there. I think for me, it's more of the, you know, this stage of a tournament. It's not that I'm scared to go broke. It's just that, is it the right strategic play to, you know, be called 30 to 40% of the time and only have, you know, 40 to 50% equity from an EV perspective? Yes, that's, that's the right play. But from a tournament perspective, I'm not sure. I could be. I could be convinced the other way, but yeah, mm-hmm. we'd have to look at the numbers. But I, I do think at the end of the day, you're probably right that the the EV, the the positive value of the EV would override whatever the ICM implications would be in this spot, mm-hmm. with very little you know pay jumps for a while. Yeah, I and I think my last point here is if we're folding king queen offsuit, like what are we calling with? Mm-hmm. In which case, it makes a button open insanely profitable for them if we're sure. not ever doing anything back to them. Right. Uh, granted, opponents not going to always know when we're uh, being like opening ourselves up to be exploited. Um, but this just seems like an option where like we can't be folding this tight because we're going to be bleeding chips and essentially getting 14th place by taking these types of plays. Right. I'd rather take the chance at going for a top four spot. Yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm never calling here. Is anybody ever calling here? Nah. To me, it's it, to me it's a folder or shove. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good stuff. I, I think you guys are right. I think you know on the on the Facebook group, I was like, yeah, I think I could, I think I could find a fold there, even though it was it was kind of an interesting interesting thing. But I think all of Facebook is where you guys are. It's just rip it in and, and for the most part fist bump and and assume that we're ahead of the range if we get called. Okay, we're we're out in seventeenth, or we're you know all of a sudden we have nine hundred k, and we're actually can take a run at this thing. Well, I just ran it on Equilab, and it's yes. about a it's about a fifty fifty with a with a thirty six percent range. That's in that the lowest hand I've got on the range is maybe queen eights queen eight offsuit uh, ten nine offsuit pairs down to fives all aces, and then king eight suited. Queen nine suited that type of range, yeah. Um, and it came out about fifty fifty. Okay, is that just pure equity, our hand versus those ranges of hands? Yes. Okay, because then I think you need to factor in uh, how often are they going to be folding, and then trim it right. down, give ourselves less equity when they do call, uh, but then trying to quantify how much fold equity we actually have. Right. I well, I understand that. I'm just yeah. giving the pure equity of that hand yeah. against that range. That whole range. Sure. So that that tells you right there that even without fold equity, the worst you're doing is a coin flip. If yeah, if they call with their entire range. Right. Well, that's what I mean. The worst you're doing is a coin flip with their entire range. 
but without yeah. without fold equity, you're right there. So you add the fold equity, and you're mm-hmm. definitely getting uh, you're getting enough equity to make that jam. more than fifty percent EV. Yeah. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. Probably around 60, 65 Yeah. With your fold equity. See, I'm just a nit man. I'm a nit. <laughs> it's a good strategic question, but but yeah, thanks, David Frazier. Thanks for uh, thanks for that question. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I can even see what's on here. I don't know if we have any other questions that came in. Did you guys have anything, or you? You see anything out there? I don't see anything on Facebook Live. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Just uh, a couple of things. Uh, thanks to you guys. Thanks to everybody who asked, uh, asked the questions. A reminder, we got Maria Ho coming up next Monday night. Ryan LaPlante the week after, 6.30 p.m. Central Time. Poker Stars home game, uh, which is December 4th. Ignore December 2nd on your screen. It's Wednesday. First Wednesday of every month, December 4th. And just, uh, you know, I don't really do this very often, but somebody said, hey, you got to make sure to remind people, uh, like the podcast, rate us, review us on iTunes, do all that stuff because that helps uh, people find us a little bit easier and whatever their algorithms are. Apparently that's a, it's a good thing if you rate and review us. Uh, So we would love uh, to have you do that. And just go to rec.poker. Everything is hopefully out there and you can figure out how to connect with us uh, on everything else there. So guys, any any parting words? Thanks for doing this. What'd you think of the whole listener question? Q&A deal. I think it was fun. I think it, it gives us good things to talk about. And it was good to have different thing, difference of opinions on things so we could discuss on why we have those. And I think it worked out very well. Yeah. Rob? Yeah, I just, I think it was a gas. I love talking, especially with you guys. It's so good, man. I learn so much from you guys all the time. I feel like it's just free coaching all the time. So I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, if you guys are, as your guys are out there listening, Facebook Live or the podcast, let us know what you thought of this. Uh, I think, you know, I think it's going to be something that people will enjoy. Uh, and I know I'm going to enjoy it too, because you're going to have just different questions that come in that we might not have even thought of, of asking and addressing. So uh, with that, we will sign off there. Thank you everybody uh, for jumping on here and we will chat with you next time and now you'll there'll be this awkward pause while i figure out how to end the facebook live (laughs) see you guys